All right, we have a couple of announcements. The major announcement is that due to the rain today, now our house only got three-quarters of an inch, but out at Orlando's, you got over three inches. So it is not going to be uh, ready for us to have a picnic Saturday, which has been kind of our standard. So we're going to postpone it two weeks for Saturday, October the 30th. And everything should be in great shape for, for that week. The other thing is that since we were going to have the deacons meeting tomorrow out at the picnic, we will have it tomorrow here at 9 o'clock or maybe Saturday. Not tomorrow, Saturday at 9 o'clock or 8.30? 8.30. Okay, 8.30. Deacon's meeting at 8.30, so that's been decided. All right, anything else? We can get into the Word. Cast your burden on the Lord, and He shall sustain you. He shall never suffer the righteous to be shaken. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and He shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust also in Him, and He shall bring it to pass. In God I have put my trust, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Before we get started this evening, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can be spiritually prepared to study the Word and to put our focus and attention on the Lord and away from all the things that uh, so easily distract us from focusing on the Lord. And so that will give us this opportunity to uh, get prepared if necessary to confess sin. So after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful that we could come to you in prayer, and we're thankful for today, for the uh, rain that we got today, as well as the cool weather that's going to come our way tomorrow. And Father, we just pray that we'll be able to reschedule that picnic and be able to uh, have a good time in a couple of weeks. Father, we pray that you will continue to work in and through everyone in this congregation, those who listen from afar and that we know that God the Holy Spirit is the one who strengthens us in our spiritual life. And we just pray that we will be uh, focused to walk with you in these difficult times. Father, we pray that as we face many things that are uncertain, always remembering that life is, the future is always uncertain, but now we realize how, how uh, uncertain and unstable it can be. We pray that we might be a picture of stability and steadfastness in our spiritual walk and that we may shine as lights in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation. And to do that, we must grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ as we're going to study this evening. And we pray that this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, open your Bibles to Second Peter chapter 3, and we are in the last two verses tonight. We are in... Uh, the final closing uh, statement, uh, beginning in 17 and ending with the benediction at the end of verse 18. 
So the title for this message is to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So in terms of our outline, remember there are three basic divisions to 2 Peter, and we're going to come back and just briefly review the whole book as we wrap up this evening. But in this third section, it has been uh, to show how God refutes the scoffing of the false teachers. And so he is going to, he begins by saying that he is writing these things to stir up their thinking by way of reminder. So important to constantly be reminded of so many important principles in Scripture that we often, we have so much coming in our heads all the time that it's easy to forget what we've learned. And then the main part of this section, which we spent a good deal of time on, is that God refutes the false teacher's denial of a literal second advent. That God will come, and when he comes, it will be a time of incredible judgment as he prepares the world for the coming of the millennial kingdom. And then the conclusion contains a warning and a challenge a warning in verse 17 to be on guard so that we are not uh, deceived by these who are called here unprincipled men, but they are lawless men. They are licentious in their teaching and to fall from our stability, our strength, really. And then it closes with the statement to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So... We have looked at this initial part of the conclusion, verses 14 through 16, uh, the last couple of weeks, that we are to be eager to be discovered by him. That is, when we are raptured at the end of the church age, and then we are to go through the great, uh, not the great white throne, but the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ, at which time all believers will be evaluated on the basis of our spiritual life and spiritual growth. And only God, who is omniscient, knows all of the factors that go into his evaluation. But the evidence that we have from Scripture is that the operative principle is going to be grace. There will be those who are not rewarded at all. They enter into heaven, as it were, through fire, according to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse uh, 13 through 15. They enter into heaven, yet it's through fire. So there's definitely going to be distinctions made at the Bema seat between believers, those who have uh, run the race well, those who have managed to endure it and make it to the end, and those who have fallen by the wayside, but they haven't lost their salvation. As we saw in those three verses, there were two basic commands to eagerly or um, uh, to put forth every effort to be found by him in peace and second, to consider or to think about, reflect on the fact that the long-suffering of our Lord uh, is salvation. And that refers back to verse 9, that the Lord is not slow about his promise but is patient or in the New King James long-suffering Uh, toward you not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So we looked at those two two commands, and we're going to have two commands again in verses 17 and 18. 
And that's what our focus is, to uh, make every effort to be found by him in peace, and then second, to consider, to think about, reflect upon uh, those things. We're reminded of the grace of God in all of this, that he desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And so then we come to that verse 16, which said is, which has a, uh, in the middle of verse 15, actually, there's a interruption in his thinking as he reflects upon the Apostle Paul, consider the long-suffering or the patience of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul has written you. And so the, the important thing that we see here is that has to do with bibliology or that has to do with Scripture and the putting together of the New Testament. And what I pointed out last time is what this shows us is that there is a, an awareness by this time, which is around uh, 64, 65 uh, a- A.D., and that at this time there's awareness and already beginning people, churches are beginning to collect the writings of Paul, and he refers to them uh, as Scripture at the very end when he makes the statement that these untaught and unstable uh, people twist these teachings to their own destruction as they do also the rest of the Scripture. And by saying the rest of the Scripture, he is shows that he's including Paul, Paul's writings as part of that scripture. So this is an important verse for understanding that even at this early stage, Peter's still alive, Paul is probably still alive. Both will not be on the earth much longer. They're both in Rome and in prison, and it will not be long before they will be executed. But even at that time, Paul's writings are understood to be Scripture. So in verse 17, he begins um, to give this second command. But he starts with a participle. He says, you therefore, drawing another conclusion, you therefore, beloved, a term that is used for believers, so he recognizes that his audience is comprised of believers, you therefore, knowing this beforehand. So this is an interesting use of this word and an important use of this word. So it gives us an opportunity to review something that was brought up at the beginning of Paul's, I mean, of Peter's first epistle. And this is the word prognosco. And prognosco is made up of the verb gnosko, which means to know something, and the, partis- and the prepositional prefix, pra, which means before. And so the word comes to mean to know something beforehand. And this is a very significant word because so often as you get into various discussions about God's omniscience and God's and this, the whole, these doctrines of election uh, that are taught within the framework of Calvinism. I've gone through this a number of times. I've taught it in First uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 2, and I've taught it in a little more detail in Ephesians chapter 1. And those are very important lessons to understand these details. And a lot of people uh, sometimes don't like to 
hear all of that detail, but that's important because uh, in terms of false teaching, the devil is in the details, and in terms of the truth, God is in the details. So we have to pay attention to these details, otherwise it's very easy to uh, get distracted. And so there are only a few uses, five uses in all of this verb in the New Testament. Two of them, two of the five, have to do with simply knowing something ahead of time. It's very clear from these passages that that's all it means. Now, to remind you, in Calvinistic theology, foreknowledge is not prescience. Prescience is simply the idea of knowing something ahead of time. And you may know something ahead of time. You may know that tomorrow somebody is going to leave town or somebody is going to come back from being out of town. Uh, But you know that ahead of time, and so you make plans today in light of what you know ahead of time. And in Calvinism, they think about this in too much of a temporal fashion as I look at this. because And there have been too many who disagree with them that also look at it in too much of a temporal fashion. As I think about the omniscience of God, we have to understand certain things. First of all, that God knows everything there is to know. He knows both what will happen and what might happen, what ought to happen, what should happen, and what could happen. He knows everything, and the fact that he knows these things that won't happen, but what would happen if people made other decisions are made clear in various passages where Jesus is teaching. For example, he, he says to uh, Capernaum and to Bethsaida that if the miracles that were done there were done in Sodom and Gomorrah, then Sodom and Gomorrah would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. They didn't, but he knows these differences and he knows what could happen and what might have happened and that is knowing ahead of time now for a Calvinist they'll say well if God knows ahead of time and elects on the basis of what somebody uh, will choose looking and as this is put looking down the corridors of time and that's a wrong way to look at it because God's knowledge isn't a knowledge that is should be illustrated as looking down the corridors of time. You think about it this way. Here, let's pretend that I'm I'm God, and I'm looking at all of history, and it covers about a, a, a timeline of about a half of an inch. And when I look at that timeline, I see everything at one glance. I'm not looking linearly and seeing what will happen in the future, I look at the totality of everything in one intuitive grasp. And that's how God looks at it, because he knows all the knowable, he knows all the potential, he knows all the actual, and because of God's foreknowledge, which is not determinative, but on the basis of that, God makes, a, makes decisions about salvation. I'll talk about election in a minute because election isn't a random uh, choice on the part of God. We'll understand what that means in a minute. 
But God, in his plan, determines that he will give a certain measure of freedom to every person in the human race with reference to their eternal destiny, choosing to believe or to reject the gospel offer. And that's not the cause of their salvation. The cause of their salvation is clearly stated in Ephesians 2, 1 through 9 as God's mercy. But God, who is rich in mercy, caused them to be born again. It is God's mercy and God's grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, that that refers to that by grace through faith salvation is not of yourselves. It's not something that's meritorious. It's not something where God can is going to pat you on the head because you made such a smart decision to trust in Christ. Because faith is non-meritorious. It's the object of faith. And you could get a rather simple illustration. Let's say you Uh, walk into a room and there are two chairs that are there and you look at them and you decide that you are going to trust one of them but you're not too sure about the other one so if you sit down in the one that you decide to trust then it is the object of your faith not your faith but the object of your faith that keeps you from collapsing onto the floor And if you had trusted in the wrong one, and when you sat on it, it would have collapsed onto the floor, and your trust would would not have been confirmed. So that's trust, faith is the means, the tunnel, as it were, or the pipeline, rather, through which grace flows and salvation comes to us uh, through Christ. And so God, in his omniscience, in his vast omniscience we we can't even begin to fathom immediately knows and on the basis of his knowledge he makes certain determinations now the the knowledge isn't the cause and you have two options god is either making those decisions on the basis of his knowledge or he's making those decisions without any reference to his knowledge so he either does it on the uh, you know he either is a, on the basis of his knowledge or he ignores his knowledge. If he is ignoring his knowledge, his uh, knowledge of all things, then God's decision is arbitrary and random. It's not based on anything. Now, in Calvinism, what they'll say, it is based on his determinative plan, and he is going to choose those who will be saved and those who won't be saved. And so if you ask the question on what basis, then, then if you say on the basis that this person is part of the group called the choice ones, then, um, then you're saying that God chose them on that basis, and that's not what we're saying. What we're saying is that God is not arbitrary, he's not random, and he is not just making decisions willy-nilly. He has got a plan within which he is so great, he is so uh, powerful that whatever random decisions are made by human beings, it doesn't affect the outcome of his plan. 
And that's a greater God than a God who micromanages every single decision and every single action, which is the kind of action you get in a Calvinist perception of God. And it doesn't change the other factors in relation to total depravity, in relation to uh, eternal security, or in relation to Christ's work on the cross and the extent of Christ's work on the cross. And so we have to start with what the Scripture says. And so it's very clear in these two passages that this word simply means to know something ahead of time, beforehand. But what Calvinists do is they look at these three uses and they, and they assign a distinctive meaning to the use of the word in Romans 8.29, Romans 11.2, and 1 Peter uh, one twenty, for they will say that God cannot know something will happen ahead of time unless he has determined that it will happen ahead of time. And therefore, God's foreknowledge is simply another way of saying God determines ahead of time what will happen, and they reject the idea that God knows what would have or could have happened under other circumstances, and that contradicts Scripture, as I've already pointed out. But one of the ways that you look at problems in analyzing words is that you have to go to various sources that will give you how and where these words are used in secular Greek outside of the Bible to understand the the concepts that, that are spoken of there. And when I taught through this, I went through the various statements in the lexica. And I also put up some quotes from Calvinists as to how they define foreknowledge and prognosco. And the conclusion was that the lexicons do not support their definition. And they provide no examples outside of the Bible where prognosco means anything other than prescience, knowing something ahead of time. And it's used a number of times outside of the Bible, and it always has that meaning. The New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology makes the statement that the corresponding noun prognosis, attested as a medical term since Hippocrates, when you go to the hospital, you get a prognosis. What's going to happen? What can you expect to happen? It comes from that word. Uh, It denotes the foreknowledge which makes it possible to predict the future because of the doctor's experience, because what happens in 99 cases out of 100 that look like your case, this is what you can expect to happen. The problem is, does prognosco mean to know beforehand in the sense of prescience, or does it mean to elect, to determine, or to lovingly choose beforehand? That is how Calvinists will... uh, interpret the word. Number one, I said, the only attested meaning outside of the Bible and the meaning in several New Testament passages indicates simply to know beforehand. Therefore, the burden of proof is on those who claim differently uh, that another unattested meaning outside of the Bible and other than in those three passages, uh, there's no evidence anywhere that the word means what they say it means. They read it in on the basis of a theological presupposition. 
It's the same kind of problem for those who wish to claim that tongues means ecstatic utterances. When there's no place that you can find outside of the usage in the Bible where it, uh, where it means uh, ecstatic utterance. And if you look in one lexicon, it will go to Acts 2, and it'll go to 1 Corinthians 13 and 14, and say that that shows you where it's used at ecstatic utterance. But that's a circular argument. You can't use the disputed passage to define itself. And second, and there are some Calvinists who, who will argue this, that when God is the subject of foreknowledge, it has a different meaning than when human beings are the subject of foreknowledge. But you can't find examples of other words where when God is the subject, it means something different than when man is the subject. Then we look at this concept of election, the concept of choice, because in the passage at the beginning of First Peter, the statement is, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. So we have this statement, according to the foreknowledge. These are, uh, the, fir- the first verse ends by saying, to those who are chosen, <clears throat> no, it doesn't have to be, <clears throat> uh, excuse me, it doesn't have to be defined as, as those who are chosen. And when um, I've gone through this study in detail, that in some places it has the idea of choice, but in other places, I mean, in terms of the act of making a choice, but in other places it has the idea, for example, of the... Um, of the idea of being choice. And choice is a, a synonym of the word select. In other words, we're, take, we're making a selection of things based on certain qualifications, and we are, are selecting the best of something, that which qualifies uh, for the selection. And I've often used the uh, reference, how I discovered this was looking at a magnum bar uh, ice cream bar in Israel, and it was, I was trying to read the modern script and learn learn vocabulary, and I asked the guide, I said, well, what, what does this mean? It's Mabecharim Shekadim, and Shekadim, he said, was almonds, and Mabecharim was choice. And then I recognized that root, Bakar, is the word that is often translated elect, the verb, but when you put an M in front of it in Hebrew, that turns it from a noun to a verb. And so all of a sudden, it's like one of those things that you get the blinding flash of the obvious, that what we're talking about here is exactly how this word is used in many passages in Scripture and probably should be translated this in many others, that it has this idea of something that has especially good quality for the believer we go to Matthew 22 in the parable of the banquet where those who are invited are all the people outside and those that respond and are admitted to the banquet are those who have the appropriate clothing which would be the righteousness of Christ. And in the parable, one guy shows up at the banquet, he doesn't have the right garment on and so he is kicked out. Now the Everybody is invited to the banquet. 
The only people in the parable that make a choice are the people who choose not to go or the people who choose to go. But the king who's uh, giving the banquet isn't making that choice as to who comes or who doesn't come. And at the end it says, uh, many are called, but few are chosen. That's how it's normally translated. But that word chosen, the, the people who came to the banquet weren't the ones who were chosen. The ones who made a choice were the ones who either didn't come or they came, but the king did not make the choice. He invited everyone. So it should be translated as choice because they qualified because they had the right clothing. That would be the righteousness of Christ. And so the adjective, the definition of the adjective says those are carefully chosen from a large number as being the best. They meet a qualification. So the conclusion was, Evidence exists of a range of meaning from selection based on some criterion of someone for something, uh, a selection or choice of one or more from out of a sizable number to the idea of being appointed to a task emphasizing the quality or character of a person or a corporate entity for that task. And when we looked at the usage in the Old Testament, I started with Romans 9:11. This is a favorite Calvinistic verse to go to. Uh, because it begins in verse 11, for the children not yet being born, in other words, the twins that are still in the womb of, of um, Rebecca are Esau and Jacob. And so uh, uh, that's what he's talking about here, the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil that the purpose of God according to election might stand. Oh, well, see, and, and they make this about salvation. But none, no choice here is related to the salvation of Esau or Jacob. When you go back and look at the Old Testament carefully, God blesses Esau greatly. And I believe Esau is, uh, it was saved. And so it's, the choice isn't about who gets to heaven. The choice is about who will be in the line of the Savior. And God chooses Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. And if you're Muslim, he didn't choose Abraham, Ishmael, or uh, another line. So according to election might stand, according to God's choice might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. And that would be a way of talking about God's grace. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by her father Isaac, for the children not yet being, uh, then I repeated it, uh, I got 9-11 in there twice. Um, it was said to her, the oldest shall serve the younger. Okay, third, the passage in Romans 9-6 is not related to individual justification, but to God's selection of Israel as a corporate entity, as the seed, a, a, a quantitative noun, a collective noun the seed of Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. That's the line of the Messiah. They would be the custodians of divine revelation to be a light to the world, a witness to an idolatrous polytheistic world. As such, Abraham wasn't called to salvation. He was called to be the father of a special people. When that happens in Genesis 15, Abraham is already saved. 
So this, it, he's not called to salvation, but to a unique role of service to God. And ultimately, that role is found, finds its focal point in the Messiah, Yahweh's servant. In one sense, Israel corporately is called to this role in service. And we go to Isaiah 41, 8 and 9. But you, Israel, are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, not for salvation, but for this role of blessing of being in the line of the Messiah. Uh, 41.9, I have chosen you and have not cast you out, but the choice isn't in relation to salvation. And in Isaiah 42.1, behold, my servant whom I uphold, my choice one, Bahir, that's that same word, my choice one, because he's the only one who qualifies to be the Messiah and to be the Savior. And then the dictionary that's called the Theological Word Book of the Old Testament, TWOT, you have this long statement, and I'm not going to read the whole statement, but in the middle of it, the writer says, in all of these cases, serviceability rather than simple arbitrariness is at the heart of the choosing. Service, serviceability, it, rather than uh, simple arbitrariness. So there's a qualification to be choice. And here are just three of numerous passages. A lot of times, some passages will translate it as select men, some translate it as choice men, or choice something. Exodus 14 7, he took 600 choice chariots. That means those chariots met a standard. He wasn't just going to take any chariot. He wanted to make sure they were all functional, that they were all repaired, they were all in good shape, and could withstand the pressure of the battle. Numbers 11.28, so Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, one of his choice men, one of the best men, the most qualified men. Uh, Judges 20.15, you have these 700 select men who are slingers. They use a slingshot. And they all are ambidextrous, and they can hit, uh, hit a dime at 100 yards with their sling every time. So you had to qualify to be a marksman with a slingshot in order to make that group. It's not just an arbitrary choice. And then the passage in, I won't read the whole context here, but in 1 Peter 2.6, quoting from, from the Old Testament, translated Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Messiah is that choice stone. And that's not my translation of the word. That's how it is in the New King James. So I'm just showing you there are a number of these passages where these words are translated choice. But when the Calvinistically oriented translators get into a, what they perceive to be a soteriology, soteriological passage, they shift the meaning of the word. Okay, so we're back to all of that was just to point out that this is one of those very important passages where prognosco is used in, a, in its normative usage to know something ahead of time. And the warning is to beware, and this is the Greek word philoso, this is the first command. There's a second command in verse 18. The second command is to grow. So on the one hand, there's a negative issue that is watch out for, protect yourself, guard against being deceived. Beware. 
Guard yourself, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness. And here it looks like I messed up that one word there. I'm going to get it out of the way, pull it down there, okay? We have this word ekpipto, which means to fall, and it just completes that. It's a really a purpose clause here that should be translated something like this. Be on guard, beloved, since you know beforehand, lest you are in order that, I didn't translate it there correctly, in order that you might not also fall from your stable, strong position. And I use two different words there to communicate that idea. Because so often in the epistle, he's contrasting the stability of the believers with the instability of these false teachers and those that follow them. So in contrast to being on guard, he says, but grow. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, that's an interesting statement. First of all, we have the word grow, which is used a number of times related to just the physical growth of a child or could refer to uh, numerical growth in the size of, of of a group. But here it has the idea of growth spiritually. So it's, a, again, a present active imperative, which means this is supposed to be a standard procedure in the life of every believer. This is the SOP, that we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, several verses emphasize this, and I think these are really interesting. And I'm just going to turn back to hit each one of these as we go through this, because it's important to get the context. So in Acts chapter 6, in Acts 6, 1, this is happening, this is before, um, before they, or just before they choose those first men who are sort of the prototype of later deacons. And it starts off, this is not long after uh, the church began, probably within the first six months or so. Now, at this time, while the disciples were increasing, and the text in the New American Standard says increasing in number, because that's the sense. So it's a growth in number. Now, that's not the word that, that we use here. But as you look at this context, it's talking about how the, the congregation is growing more and more believers are being added to their number every day. And then we come down to verse 7. And we see, we see the statement, the word of God kept on spreading. And I think this should be translated not so much the word of God as we think of the Bible, but it's the message of God. Logos has a huge range of meaning. That's the word that's translated word. And it has a, a large range of meaning. And it's, they're talking about the message of the gospel, the message of Christ's resurrection, and the message of forgiveness of sin. And it is that message that kept on spreading. And as it spread, the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. The word increase is the word that we find here, the word oxana. 
So it has this idea of, of increasing as a result of the spreading of the word of God. And it's, this idea is repeated two more times in, in uh, Acts. That in Acts 12.24, there's this other progress report. Uh, the word of God grew and multiplied. It's the word grew that is the translation of Auxana and Acts 19.20. So it's the word that is the, the growth factor. It's the word, and that's important because whether we're talking about the word causing growth in terms of numerical growth in the church or the word causing spiritual growth in our lives, the power is in the word of God. The word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. In a passage in 1 Corinthians, Paul describes how God uses different people to do different things in giving the gospel to different people. Uh, Some studies that have been done indicate that a person probably hears the gospel somewhere between six and ten times before they finally trust in Christ. I don't know how accurate that is, but that's probably true for a lot of people. I know when my parents told me the gospel, I had probably heard it because I was taken to Sunday school every every Sunday, and I had probably heard it, but it wasn't until they sat down and made it clear to me that I really focused on it, but I had heard it before. So uh, Paul says, I planted. He was the first one to come along, start the church, proclaim the gospel of the Christ as Jesus as the Messiah, said, I planted, Apollos watered. Apollos was another, uh, not an apostle, but he was a believer who came, a a Hellenistic Jew, who came along and pastored the church in Corinth after Paul had started it. And then he said, but God is the one who caused the growth. Every pastor should recognize that. I'm not the, I am only the intermediate means God uses to proclaim the truth of his word, but it is God working in his word that causes the growth. I just get the privilege and the blessing to be part of the process every now and then. And then in the next verse, Paul says, so then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. It's all ultimately God who enables all of that to take place. In Ephesians 4.15, a verse we are approaching in our study on Sunday morning, but speaking the truth in love that you may grow up in all things. So this is talking about spiritual, uh, spiritual growth and maturity. Colossians 1.10 says that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and growing are increasing in the knowledge of God. Now, that's a good parallel to what we read in 2 Peter uh, 3, that we grow in the knowledge of God, the way Paul puts it, but Peter says it's the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, of course, because the Trinity, God the Son and God the Father, are one, uh, there is a, a way in which it's the same knowledge, but it's emphasizing uh, different aspects. So here, uh, 
Paul is just talking about the generic God, which would include everything, not just theology proper, but everything related to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But that what is the cause of spiritual growth is learning about God. We grow in the knowledge about God. And to begin to grow, you have to know certain things. And first you learn, you get information. And as you get facts and you get information, then you have to understand what those facts and what that information means. And I wish I had it handy in front of me, but the other day I was reading in an article written by J. Gresham Machen in a, a Presbyterian, uh, the Princeton Theological Review in 1926, and he made the point that basically he's talking about the message of Christianity, and it involves two things. It involves giving the facts the historical facts, the facts that happened in space-time history, and then second, the doctrine, which he defines as the meaning of the facts. See, somewhere along the line, by the end of the 20th century, the word doctrine came to mean more the idea of theology. And I don't know what caused that shift, but I know in, in reading through various things I've read from Machen, he uses the doct- that word doctrine in a way that is similar to how many of us have used that word, that it doesn't refer just to abstract theology, but it refers to the whole realm of what the Bible teaches from understanding the facts to understanding the application of it in a way that is very similar to the way the military uses the word doctrine when it's talking about various doctrines related to how to um, how to carry out an amphibious landing or how to carry out a, a night mission or a long-range reconnaissance patrol. And so it includes, the doctrine includes everything from the basics of what you need to have to carry out the mission to the the strategy and the tactics of the mission and how you are to apply all of that knowledge. And that's what doctrine really means. It is the instruction that covers both the information or the historical facts, as Machen put it, and the meaning and significance of those facts. And that's basically what teaching is in the Bible. It's communicating the historical facts and then the significance and meaning of those historical facts uh, for each one of us. And that's the knowledge about God that is necessary for spiritual growth. The next passage that talks about this is in uh, 1 Peter 2.2, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby that it is the Word of God that is the basis for spiritual growth. We do not grow apart from it. We grow, uh, the Word of God is used by God the Holy Spirit uh, to produce that, that spiritual growth. And I'm looking for something here that I left out of these, out of the notes. But this is what we come across in this, this last verse in Second uh, Peter, that, and then he's going to conclude at the very end with a benediction, where he says, "If I can get to the right page, 
to him, and the him would refer to the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, which is the most immediate antecedent to the pronoun. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Now, glory has a lot of different nuances to it, but essentially, no pun intended, it refers to the essence of God. It's what makes God important. You have to go back to the Hebrew word kavad, which is, has the root idea of something that is heavy. And if it's heavy, it's important, it's significant, it has uh, something that is heavy, there's more of it, so it has value. And so it's what's there that makes it important. And so when we talk about, for example, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, we understand that that really means all have sinned and fall short of the whole character of God. We fall short of God's standard. And so when it speaks here, to him be the glory, that is in effect saying to him be all of the attribution of significance and importance. We are to give all credit to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who is important. He is the one who paid the price for our sins at Golgotha, and he is the one who has provided salvation for us. So we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity, which is an idiom forevermore. And then he concludes, amen. Now, one other passage that I was going to bring up that is important for understanding this is in John 17, 17. In John 17, 17, this is one sentence in the midst of this whole prayer where the Lord Jesus Christ is praying to the Father. It's probably while he is in Gethsemane. And he says to the Father, sanctify them in truth. And that word sanctify means to be set apart. That is basically a synonym for spiritual growth. And sanctify them by means of truth. It's not by emotion. It's not by singing. It's not by praying. It is by means of the truth. And then he clearly defines the truth as the word of God. Thy word is truth. And so when you put that statement together with 1 Peter 2.2, 2, it brings out the principle that you can't grow spiritually if you're not in the Word of God and the Word of God isn't getting into you. It just won't happen. And people who think that they can get there by showing up on Sunday morning once or twice a month are just playing games. Hopefully, eventually, God will... Uh, work on them, they'll realize that's insufficient and it needs to be more. And I know that there are a lot of people that I only see once a week or once every few weeks, but they're listening many times during the week and they're paying attention and they are in the Word and reading the Word and God is working in their lives and they're growing to maturity. Everybody goes through that stage where you get saved and you just spend some time going on Sunday and then one day, we hope and pray, you wake up and realize that you're never going to flush out all the cosmic garbage from your soul uh, just by flushing on Sunday morning. You've got to do it day in and day out. 
So that brings us to the end of Second Peter. And in the time we remain, I just want to review us a little bit on what we have done. So here's our basic outline that I developed at the beginning on Second Peter. I like to have the main headings in, in my outlines of, of God as the subject. God is the hero of the Bible. He's the hero of every narrative in the Old Testament to one degree or another. And even if you're in some section of a story, ultimately God is the one who's working to bring all of these things together. God isn't mentioned anywhere in the book of Esther. But that silence about God is what resonates so loudly because you realize that it is God who's working behind the scenes to rescue the Jewish people from the anti-Semitism of Haman and that God always will protect his people, whether they're obedient to him or not. That doesn't mean there won't be horrible things that happen to them. There were horrible things that happened to them all through the Old Testament. But that God is going to protect them and preserve them so he can ultimately fulfill his promises to them. So the three, the three sections of this epistle are, first of all, uh, God's will is for us to sp- grow to spiritual maturity. That's in the f- most of the first chapter, 1 to 3 to 21. The salutation is the first couple of verses. The second division is the second chapter. God warns us about false teachers. And then the third division is God refutes specific false teaching. That is the scoffers who are scoffing that where's the promise of his coming in 3, 1, 2, 14, and then the conclusion that we looked at this evening. So in that first chapter, in that first division from 3 to 21, he points out what God has given to us in verses 3 and 4, which I quote regularly on Sunday morning, that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his glory and virtue. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that through these you may become partakers of the divine nature. Now, what does that mean? That doesn't mean we become divine, but that as it states in Romans 8, 28 and 29, we are being conformed to the image of Christ. That is spiritual maturity. And that comes how? It comes through the fact that God has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of his son, and that through the scriptures he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. So in those two verses it's saying the way we become partakers of the divine nature in terms of spiritual maturity is through God's word. And that it is because of we have believed the gospel that we have escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And then he goes on in the next few verses, and he explains the different stages, and he talks about applying diligence, which is that idea of being uh, making every effort towards something, and that is our effort to grow to spiritual maturity, our effort to study the Word, 
And the result of that is what is brought out in verses 12 to 15, which is talking about the fact that they are established in the truth. That concept of establishment has to, it comes from a word that indicates a foundation. That is what gives stability, is that they are established in the truth. And then uh, Peter goes on in the rest of that chapter in verses 16 to 21 to talk about the fact that what they have believed is absolute truth. What they believed is the word of God. And what he says is, for we did not follow cleverly devised tales. Now, who's following cleverly devised tales? Well, in the second chapter, it's going to be the people who are deceived by the false teachers. So he's starting to make his transition here in verse 16 to uh, warn them about uh, the danger of these false teachers. And he talks, first of all, about the solid way in which they heard the word. He said, we didn't follow cleverly devised tales. And in verse 17, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, uh, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And that happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. So Peter's talking here about the fact that they saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration where his human uh, nature is overshadowed by his divine nature and the glory of who he was came through and this is when they hear the objective recordable voice of God saying this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased and he says we heard this on that mountain and so that makes that confirms the prophetic word when he says so we have the prophetic word made more sure it really has the idea, it's confirmed. The prophetic word is that which was prophesied about the Messiah and what God would do through the Messiah. And that's confirmed, was confirmed to them at the Mount of Transfiguration. And then he goes to verse 20, he says, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. The prophets weren't making this up. It wasn't something that came from them. It was a message that came from uh, God through the Holy Spirit working through them. And then chapter 2. Chapter 2, we come to the fact that God warns us about these false teachers. And the first statement is a statement of a, the certainty of false teachers and their destructive heresies. But false prophets also arose among the people that would be the people of Israel just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. And that is a clear statement of unlimited atonement, that Christ died for the sins of the whole world, and that sin isn't the issue anymore. The issue is belief in Christ, John 3.18. Those who are condemned are condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God, not because of certain sins in their life, but because they haven't availed themselves of the solution. So this tells us that false teachers will come, 
and that their deception is destructive and it is lawless. That lawlessness, that antinomianism, which is so prevalent in our culture today, many will follow their sensuality and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned because they're going to say that they're Christians. And so people are going to look at these lawless antinomian people and you can turn your television on to Christian channels just about any day and see a number of false teachers on there and people think, well, that's Christianity. And and that just brings shame on the body of Christ. That's what he's what he's talking about here, the maligning the way of truth which these false teachers are bringing on themselves. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. And then the certainty of God's judgment against those who sin are is described in the next section from 4 to 9 where we look at the example of the uh, fallen angels who entered into human history and took human wives uh, from among the daughters of men and committed the sin of of Genesis chapter 6 and they are then uh, punished and sent to these uh, pits of darkness, these dark holes and where they are held in judgment. So they're they're in uh, jail waiting for their time in court. And he doesn't despair, he didn't spare the ancient world. So there's judgment on the, those fallen angels, there's judgment on the ancient world, and then the third example is judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And that God, in that judgment, in the judgment with the flood, God rescued those who were with Noah. God rescued uh, Lot and his daughters. And Lot is referred to as a righteous man. And that he was oppressed by this sensual conduct, this licentiousness of the culture around him, but not enough to leave it. But he's still called righteous because he had trusted in the promise of a Messiah. And just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, the same thing was true for Lot. And that's a great passage to recognize eternal security that even though we may fail in some horrible ways, we are still secure, we are still positionally righteous. Then we get into the... Uh, section uh, from verses 10 down to 22, which t- illustrates how their arrogance is self-destructive. And there it goes through a number of different uh, examples and compares them to irrational animals. And that's exactly what we have today. And in my reading of Gresham Machen, uh the last few days, he talks about the difference between religious liberalism and Christianity and religious liberalism wants to present itself as Christian, as a good, healthy form of Christianity. And he says that it is not Christianity at all. Christianity has the Bible as its authority and liberals have only uh, the, um, how did he put it? He said only the sinfulness Their ultimate authority is their sinful emotions or the emotions of sinful men. That's all it is. And that's that's what what is pictured here. Uh, It is driven by emotion and liberal theology and liberal politics 
is driven by emotion. It takes a while to understand that. If you don't understand it, there's a number of books to read. I would start with Thomas Sowell's book, Conflict of Vision, where he traces this back to the 1700s and shows that this is the difference, uh, that you saw this development within the within the context of Christianity at that time, and it developed the idea that man really wasn't born spiritually dead, and he was born, uh, wasn't born uh, guilty of Adam's original sin and corrupt and constitutionally, uh, constitutionally de- dead and separated from God. And those who accepted that is common to people who are conservatives, that they believe that man can do good things, but he's basically evil. Liberalism developed from those on the other side who said, no, everybody's just born. Look at those sweet little babies. Everybody's born neutral, just like Adam was created. And they can become, they can perfect themselves. And if they can perfect themselves, they can perfect society. And so he has a couple of examples taken from that time period in the late 18th century to illustrate this. And this is what we see around us. It's, it's gone to seed now. We see liberalism dominating, uh, f- uh, following a utopic idea that man is basically good and therefore government can solve all your problems. It all works together. And the other side, the government has to be controlled because of sin and we have to have limited government in order for people to have genuine freedom. And so all of this works works out. And so liberalism in all of its forms is driven by emotion and is part of that false teaching. And then as he wraps up in Second Peter 2, he comes to the third section where God refutes the specific teaching of these false teachers. They're scoffing that Jesus isn't going to return. I mean, it's gone on for 2,000 years. Where's the promise of his coming? And so Peter shows that, no, indeed, the fact that he hasn't returned is just God's patience. He desires all men to repent, and God will come. And when that day of God or the day of the Lord comes like a thief, in verses 10 through 14, there will be a judgment that you will regret forever. And then he closes out the epistle. So that gives us our flyover of Second Peter. And I'll be on vacation next week, Tuesday night, because there was a conflict that uh, uh, Doug Petrovich didn't realize he had on Thursday. But he's going to be here Tuesday night. And then Scott Ulrich will be here next Thursday night and on the following Sunday. And then when I get back in two weeks, we'll begin a study of Philippians. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study through uh, Second Peter, be challenged in, in terms of knowledge, that we are to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It starts with understanding just the basic facts, the basic information of Scripture, but we have to have that in order to start moving from the baby food of Scripture to the meat of Scripture and to begin to trust you for what is in Scripture where we begin to grow on the basis of that uh, more certain knowledge. And, Father, we pray that none of us will grow lax in our uh, desire to know you and to know your word and for your word to be internalized in uh, the, the major 
uh, factor shaping our character, shaping our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.